morning once again, Smith. Before I say anything else, I want to thank the church. I want to thank Brother Peter for giving me the opportunity to still do what I love doing, still doing what I believe I am called to do still to this day. This is more important. The preaching of the word is more important than anything any of us could do. And it's not just my job, and it's not just Peter's job. The preaching of this scripture by every mouth who claims to be a believer in any situation to any person at any time is the most important thing in our lives because Jesus saves. Amen? God is good. All the time. Amen. With that said, today I want to dive into John 4 really 20 verse 1 through 26 so if you all will go ahead and turn to john 4 with me in however way you can if you can the moral of this one the takeaway i believe god is trying to tell us is that jesus and christ and salvation are greater than all of the scope of history it's greater than personal history it's greater than cultural history and it's greater than natural history Because if you've turned there, John 4 is about the woman at the well. And I want to challenge us as I challenged myself. All of these stories, a lot of us have heard over and over. Some of us may not have heard at all. But for those of us that have heard it over and over, it starts to get humdrum. It starts to get get repetitions. It did for me. It did for me for sure. I'm sitting here thinking, yes, I know this story. I know what happens. Woman at the well, she's a Samaritan. Jews don't ever touch Samaritans or go near them. I get it. God loves her, and he talked to her. Okay, moving on. The story is so much more complex than that. There's so much more context, so much more cultural meaning that makes the story even more powerful. And I had to rediscover that for myself. I had to rediscover what made Christ so special in all of his stories, but especially in this one. So I'll ask a couple of introductory questions here real quick. And feel free, if you want to answer them out loud, you can. Otherwise, just answer them in your head. How many people believe that history, the grand scope of history, has had a massive sway on what we believe in and about other people? I do. History has defined the way we think about other people. Even if it's just in our community, even if it's in our nation, even certainly other nations. I learned that on a mission trip to Bosnia. Everything you typically think about another country, unless you've been there, a lot of it's wrong. And it's vice versa. People coming to America think America is going to be so much different than than it is when they get here. How has that ever stopped us from answering the call to ministry? Has someone's personal history stopped us from answering the call to ministry? It stopped me because I know that one fact that I shouldn't have picked up, but I was eavesdropping and I heard them. And now I just can't look at that person the same way. That person cut me off going to work every single day for a year. I really don't want to talk to him. Personal history, or maybe it's somebody who has wronged you. Maybe it's a family member who has never wronged you, but you never knew how to start that Christian mission opportunity with them. You never knew how to start that conversation. That's the hardest part for me is family. The point being, we let it history, national, cultural, personal history stop us. But it did not stop Jesus and it will not stop him ever. That's when we get into this text. John chapter 4. This is about the woman in the well. But the woman at the well is the Christian who has fallen away. The woman at the well is also a sinner who has never committed to Christ. But the truth of this is is that Jesus' gift of salvation is for all people in all walks of life. And he leads her through this with compassion and grace. So, if you all will bear with me, I would like to read through John 4 up to verse 26. And then we will go back through piece by piece and see the context of this story that makes it so much more powerful, to me anyway. Let's start in verse 1. 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you, know, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is, where the place, is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. And this is where we come to our focal verse. This is the power of Christ. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. The focal verse of this whole passage for me today was 21 through 26. But we'll back up and start from the beginning. The context here is crucial. And we're going to go through this first chunk is verses 1 through 9. If you all were not aware, I wasn't aware until I started researching and learning about it. Samaritans were Jews intermarried with pagan people, the Assyrians left behind to settle the northern kingdom of Israel. When is the Israel was... Or, the Israelites were broken up into two kingdoms, Israel and Judea. When Israel was overtaken by the Assyrians, they left pagan people in that country with the Jews that survived. So they started to intermarry. They started to mix tradition, started to mix their belief systems. And what that created is neither side liked them. The original pagans, the Assyrians from up north, and the southern kingdom of Judea, neither of them liked them because they had kind of cross-mingled everything they believed. Neither people group truly accepted them, but Jews were particularly hateful, seeing Samaritans as Jews who failed, Jews who fell off the bandwagon, Jews that forsaked their God for pagan customs. The Jews never always abided by their rules, and when someone broke those rules, they tended to cast them out. And here was a whole nation that had broke the rules in the eyes of the devout Jews. The rule was even so severe that upright Jews couldn't even cross the border without themselves becoming unclean. They would walk miles and miles around, crossing the Jordan River twice just to get into the kingdom above without passing through Samaria. The woman here is truly surprised that God even spoke to her, but it's more important than that. He took a drink from her bucket. It wasn't necessarily a problem that he talked to her. It wasn't necessarily a thing, well, oh, he talked to her, he's unclean, we must... 
cleanse him at the temple, but it certainly was if he took a drink from something that she had put her mouth on, that other Samaritans had put her mouth on, that would have cast Jewish law straight down. So you imagine her surprise right here in verse, let's see, verses 9. The woman Samaritan said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, none at all. For him to be, make himself unclean is like for me to walk into some place that I am completely foreign. Walk into some place, hmm, let's think of an example. We have a community right over here that a lot of people view as nefarious or criminal or people who are of a low income status that we typically don't want to deal with. And they're right next door. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask a deacon. We're always talking about how we can reach out to those people over there. Think about where you live. Surely there's people around you who you don't want to talk to. Maybe they are scary. I'm thinking about this church in our missions video. A lot of those people, he's right. If a lot of those people walked into, say, this church, maybe we wouldn't be scared of them, but they definitely get some side eyes. They'd definitely be watched on the camera as they walked into the building. Is that something that they are justified by in God's eyes? Or does he look at them with the same grace and love as he looks at the 40-year Christian who is a pastor, a deacon, a disciple, a leader, a worship leader? Is that man any better than the person who just walked in off the street and says, hey, I want to learn. I want to know what this Christ is. So here's the Samaritan woman with that same scenario. Let's keep looking. In verses 10 through 15, let's read over these right quick. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gives us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of this water I give him will have eternal life. The water I will give him will become in him a spring well of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The woman knows what she's talking about. She knows the Jewish history and the heritage. Even after the Assyrian conquest so many years before, she called her people's father Jacob, not an Assyrian king, not an, a foreign ruler. To her people, their father is still Jacob, the same father that the Jews still identify as one of their great patriarchs as Jacob. So right there you have two people who believe that their ancestor was the same man and yet one completely despises the other and the other in turn. Doesn't that sound like there has been years of history that have separated these people? Doesn't that sound like there have been turn of events that created a situation where two people with the same father are so disparate from themselves? She is expecting a Messiah the same as the Jews. But like so many, she is only looking towards the physical deliverance at the moment. We can see this in verse 11 and 12. Let's read it again. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Even when he said, I will give you living water, she's still thinking, okay, physical. He's talking about this well. Well, where's his bucket? She's not grasping what Jesus is talking about. Now, granted, I don't know how long these two spent together, but it could not have been a long for, him to really, for her to really have seen his divine nature. He is slowly unfolding it to her. Let's keep going. In verse 12, Are you not greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank of it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she knew what she was doing, and she knew that the Messiah was coming from Jewish tradition. She knew that they should be looking for eternal salvation. And she's still thinking water in a physical sense. The gift of God in verse 10, Jesus offers, is the eternal salvation brought only by Him. The Messiah, she and the entire Jewish nation have been waiting for. 
That's another thing that is drawing these people together. They're waiting for the same thing. They're waiting for the same Messiah. And yet, one despises the other. Did the Messiah come for only the Jews? Did the Messiah come for everyone? And these Samaritan people are expecting the same thing. Even through verses 13 and 15, through 15, she is still expecting physical water to be life-giving. We can look through here. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's still thinking, okay, cool. Maybe it's eternal water where I don't have to thirst anymore. And I definitely don't have to come draw water. I mean, that sounds really awesome. But she's still not grasping. Even by this miracle that he is proposing to her now, okay, this man is proposing a miracle. Give me water that I'll never thirst again. But the miracle is far greater than her mind is grasping onto now. But that is the background, the cultural emphasis here. We're going to move on in this next section of verses, starting with verse 16, into the heart condition of these people. We went through the physical state of the world, physical state of her, where her nation and her culture have put her, and where Jews have responded to it. Now he's going deep. He is going into where she is in the moment, her heart. And we're going to pull that out. So let's look at verse 16 through about 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the only one, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. My commentaries that I was reading that Brother Peter provided and my Bible here provided meant in the way that she phrased it in the original text, when she said, I have no husband, she was trying to close the matter there. She was trying to end this conversation. Correct, I don't have a husband. And she was probably going to try to walk away or turn away from him. But God has a way of drawing us back when we reject him, right? He has a way of pulling us back in a way we never expected. And here he says, you are correct. You've had five husbands. That surely got her attention. Because even if the whole town knew that she had five husbands, this was a Jew? Not from here, and it maybe only been there a couple of hours. There is no way that this man could have collected enough information about her to know that she had five husbands within a couple hours in a city that he shouldn't even be in by right. So it caught her attention, and this was a miraculous thing. And this is when you start to see her pay attention. This is when you see her start to come into the realization that this is bigger than her. That he is bigger than her. What did it take? It took conviction. It took tugging at her heart. And he hasn't even condemned her or convicted her of anything. The fact that he called it out when she never wanted it to be called out was enough for her to see that this man was special and that what he's offering may be bigger than she ever imagined. He performed this miracle to lead her to his identity. That is the goal. Everything he does now, right? Everything he does in our lives is to lead us to his identity. I had people at work ask me just a few weeks ago, why did this horrible thing happen to my family member? He was questioning me. He was saying, I just can't get behind a God that does bad things. But even he acknowledged that his life, he paid attention to how good his life was when his friends was lost. I'm not saying that we're supposed to glory or praise the Lord when horrible things happen, but we will see that it still works to the good of the kingdom, and it always has. Our personal sins, when exposed, only lead to the grace of Christ. Is that a fun process? Absolutely not. Is it something that if we could ask God to take it away, and he would, we probably would do it and not have to confront the truth. But he forced this lady to confront the truth in a gentle and kind way. He's not saying here, um, you're an adulterer, 
and you've had like, what, probably four divorces now, and you've broken pretty much every law in the Jewish book, yeah, I'm not associating with you, and you're a really bad person. He never said that to this woman. All he said was, is you've had five husbands. I know this. Not, you're a horrible person. I'm in the city, aren't I? I'm not about to tell you I'm a horrible person. If I thought you were a horrible person, I wouldn't have come into the whole country. But he went there and he reached someone. Just as what we're called to do. He addresses a heart issue and exposes her manner of arrival and the time of day. More context. She is arriving at six or the sixth hour, which is about noon. Noon, 12.30 is what they think. Now, if you're familiar with that eastern Mediterranean area, it is a very coastal, a very, very tropical environment, and by golly is it hot. The heat at noon in the middle of Samaria is probably deafening and beating on the backs of anyone out there. That's probably why Jesus was weary. If he'd been traveling this far, his human body was weary because they'd been moving in the hot of the day. And here's this woman with no one around coming to the well when absolutely no one's here. One had to wonder why. She did it for a reason, and God knew that reason. But it was to avoid her shame. The whole city, town, probably knew about this woman's exploits. Probably knew about this woman's life. They had created history for her. She had a history. She had a background. And people were shaming her because of it. Whether she truly broke the laws of the tradition of the religion is one thing. But how they respond to that is entirely another. I made the comparison earlier that she is the Christian who has fallen away. And here is what I mean by that. I've watched this church my whole life. They have brought me here my whole life. And I hesitate to say this because I don't want anyone to feel to blame or to be ashamed because there is no shame in those of us who have been here faithfully. But I remember as a kid, and Irene, you can back me up, when the church was flipped around and every single row was completely packed in VBS. We had a balcony packed in VBS. We would have Sunday nights or revival services with our choir loft and the whole building would shake with the voices of people crying out to God. I've watched it go from that. And for whatever reason, I don't know if we'll ever put a finger on it. I don't know if we'll ever find out why. But the people started dropping. One by one, by family, by family, by family. And I don't know where they've gone. I don't know what's happened. Do I let that fear of the unknown stop me from reaching out to these people? Do I let that fear of why they left reduce friendships to nothing? I was friends with many of these people. All of you, a lot of you, were friends with these people. Should we leave them to wherever they've gone? Now, I'm not saying that they've all fallen off the bandwagon. I'm not saying they've all turned to lives of sin and renounced their former life. All I'm saying is we don't know either way. I don't know either way. And that's on me. That's on us. She was a woman. This woman at the well lived in the Jewish custom. She should know better. She should know what to do. She should know the life she should live. And yet, the Assyrian influence, the pagan influence, had taken over her life. Maybe some of our friends, who are still our friends, even though they've walked away, don't ever forget that. Maybe some of our friends have simply been influenced by something they weren't prepared for. And maybe we didn't prepare them to face it. That is the power of Christ because he was prepared. He knew where to go. He knew who to meet. He knew what to say. 
And he wrote it all here. He wrote it for us. If you think about it, honestly, we don't have that hard of a job. Listen to this and trust God. Do what this says, treat others the way God did, and trust Him. And the rest falls into place. That is what He did for the Samaritan woman. And that is what they did in California with all those people that were left behind. You heard the the testimony of the one man with the ball cap. He said that this pastor showed them a love that the world had never shown them. Don't you think the Samaritan woman was in the same boat? Don't you think the Samaritan woman felt the same thing? There are some good things about history. The good things also repeat themselves, especially when it comes to Christ. He has never let his history die where it was written. He has never let anything that was written be forgotten. His promises are still real. His influence is still real. His love still motivates us. And he called out to this woman in her shame, in her sin, and said, My child, I want to give you living water that runs to eternal life. Surely we should think that for others around us. Her many marriages and cohabitation with a man not her husband would certainly be a matter of contempt in the culture of Jews and to a lesser extent the pagans. Even though the pagan cultures didn't necessarily have the same strict laws that the Jews did, they saw people as more of a property. And if you took a wife and for some reason you lost that wife, you've done something to mess that up or she did. So even in the pagan culture that many times around would start to look funny. And to the Jews, you were downright a problem. So not only is she looked down upon by the Jews, she's starting to be looked down upon by her own people because she's coming to the well alone. The other women in her village, even if they were devout Jews, even if those that were supposed to care for her have abandoned her, or maybe she did it to herself, we don't know. There may have been women trying to reach out to her. There may have been people trying to reach out to her. And her shame would not let her speak to them as someone who loves her. And I don't want to throw all this on the Samaritan woman. We do this every day. Every day I'm reminding myself to trust and love those around me. Trusting people is easier than loving them. I am never going to brag on my ability, but I love people readily. I really do try. I want them to see God's provision. Now, trusting them, that's a different story. We've been burned so many times, haven't we? We've been hurt so many times. This Samaritan woman was hurt for some reason because she would not go to the well with the other women. She went at the hottest part of the day. When no one was there, some hurt was keeping her from being the woman she needed to be. Her personal sin was called out gently and with compassion, letting her see that this man was beyond her understanding. Because you saw when she clicked, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I find those two exchanges funny. He had just called out her husbands. Okay, I get it. This man is definitely not normal. This man is some sort of prophet or divine being, person. He has some sort of spirit upon him. I really don't want to talk about all of my past marriages, so I'm going to ask him about Jerusalem. How many times do we avoid that? I know of me personally, I've had so many questions asked to me about Christ, about Christianity, like why did my why did God kill my mother with cancer over 4 years? That I don't A want to answer that or B don't know how, so I switch the question. And I have to catch myself. Usually it's at the end of the day when I lay down to sleep and I think I had that opportunity and I wasted it. 
I chickened out. Could Jesus have possibly chickened out? Could he have possibly said, no, I'm not going to talk to her? He is the reason we can do it. The Holy Spirit residing with us is the whole reason we could talk to the Samaritan woman. We're going to move on to the focal verses of the day. This is the meat of the matter. Verses 20 through 26. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. We'll stop there. She's saying, okay, the Jews have a problem with us because we worship over here, and they say we should go over there. That's one of the big contempts because they're saying you're not even worshiping your God right. Aside from breaking all the laws, you can't even worship right because you're in the wrong place. So she calls that out to Jesus. Okay, you're a Jew. Why? Why is that a thing? Listen to his response. It's so gentle. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. Now, I don't imagine God sit there and went, woman, believe me. He's not about to sit there and be stern or forceful like an old western or something. He's saying, woman, believe me. I know your pain. I know what you're going through. I know your life. And I know what you long for. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That would have thrown her off. No physical place of worship. We've always had a physical place of worship. From the beginning of time in the book of Genesis, they set up altars to the Lord. And here is Jesus saying, yeah, we're going to do away with all of them. Now, she might have believed it for Samaria. They were loose on the rules anyway. But he's saying Jerusalem's not going to do it. The center of the law will no longer have a reason to worship in one particular place. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. This is a verse that gets kind of twisted sometimes. When he's saying what you do not know is himself. You worship what you do not know personally. Me, the Messiah, the salvation of the world. We, Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. They worship me, the ones that should, the ones that I called to worship me, the ones that actually were obedient, worship me because they know me. And salvation came from the line of David, from the Jews. Not the Jews are going to save you. That's what a lot of people hear. Salvation is from the Jews, meaning the Jews are going to save you. That is not what he's saying. Salvation came from them to the rest of the world because they are still his chosen people. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. What does He mean by the Spirit there? Worship Him in spirit. Worship Him in the Holy Spirit. When He was laid upon that cross, died and rose again, and the Holy Spirit entered the hearts of believers, that is where they worship. What are we told in the Bible? Our body is a temple. Every single point of light that is the big C church is a temple for Christ. Do you believe he didn't want that Samaritan woman to reach that same point? Do you believe that he didn't want her to be a temple for himself? No. And to those of us who believe now, and those of us who could believe later, this is where we worship. And it starts here. It starts when you open your eyes in the morning and when you close them at night. If you can't worship here at church, or you have trouble worshiping, or it's become a struggle for you, I challenge you, find out how to worship here first. Find out how to worship where your heart is. And boy, I've had to challenge that. I'll give you a specific example. In college, Whitney went to college with me the last two years, junior and senior. But the first two, freshman and sophomore, there were a lot of weeks where I spent a Sunday without anyone telling me to go to church. 
And in Williamsburg, where my college is, there are a lot of churches. And I could not be bothered to go find a practicing body of believers. I only did it when I came home. And when you all saw me those few times when I came home. And I thought, ah, it's okay. I'll, I'll go to church when I get home. I'll go to church with the people I'm comfortable with. I'll go to church with the people I know, the people who aren't going to challenge me, the people who aren't going to make me think differently. I'll go to church where I'm comfortable. I don't want to go to church where I have to make new friends, learn new people, talk to people I don't know. And he called me out for that hard. And he said, you have got to get your act together, especially if you're going to go on telling people that you want to preach and want to speak frequently. If you're going to keep on saying that, buddy, you better get your butt in gear. But Whitney has helped me see that not only is he the person who is the strong and capable leader who sets us straight, he is the best friend who walks beside us the whole time. I have a tendency to think of God as some over-strict ruler that only responds to me when I do something wrong. And I know that's false. And Whitney has helped me be and see that the best friend Christ is walking beside us daily. And I'm not saying anything about our relationship or us personally as Christians. There are people in your life who do that for you as well. There are people in your life who will be that for you? And what it takes is someone to disciple you. And maybe a disciple is someone younger. Maybe a disciple that is discipling you is someone you never expected. Because as soon as we put what discipleship looks like in a box, God can't use it. Discipleship is God's job, and he will appoint who he believes is worthy to disciple others. I've had phrases from children change my life. Just like out of the mouths of babes, as he said, let each one of them come to me, for they understand. Once the woman realizes that Jesus knows more than a normal man, and that he is divine, she turns to a doctrinal matter. She turns to a surface matter. She still believes him to only be a prophet before verses 19. In verses 19 and 20, her inquiry, her question, is physical, answering a question that divides the Samaritans and Jews. She wants to get political. She wants to get on a surface level. His answer was more divine and true and spiritual than she could have imagined. How many times do we ask God for one thing and he gives us way more than we ask for? Should we react with discomfort? Should we react with impatience? Should we react with, oh, whoa, 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 that is, I asked for this and you gave me all that. I, hey, I'm taking what I asked for and I'm going on. Or do we say, you have given me strength to deal with it. I'm taking it all on and you're going to have to help. That is our call. All we have to do is sit back and let him pilot. And he will tell us what to do. As he told this Samaritan woman. This is where grace steps in and saves the lost and the different. In verses 21 through 24, worship and belief in the Savior is soon to be global and spiritual. The Jews never saw that. I don't know if the Samaritans ever saw that. But we know of all of these Old Testament, these New Testament churches that sprung up all around, that truly believed that things were going to be better and that worship was here in the spirit. We always claim that this is just a building and the body of people is the church, right? That we could go anywhere and still do church. Sometimes I wish he'd challenge us in that. Sometimes I wish he'd put us to the test and show us what it means to worship without all of our creature comforts 
without the sound system and the TVs and the pulpit and the pews and all the church clothes. But we find that people are doing that today and Jesus did that in Samaria, did he not? His disciples did that in Samaria. They did it all over that southeast Mediterranean and northeast Mediterranean area. They did it everywhere. And church didn't look like this. Wonder what would happen if we challenged that and saw revival. The Samaritans did not know Jesus, the Messiah, so they did not worship him. The Jews whom Jesus was born into should have worshipped him wholly. And some did. Because salvation, Jesus, came from the Jews. We'll go through the last few verses here. 23 through 25. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worship will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I didn't realize how rare verse 26 is. Rarely does God say directly, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. Rarely did Jesus say that. He preferred to have people recognize it. Like when Peter said, who do the people say I am? They say you're Elijah or John the Baptist or something like that. And he says, okay, who do you say I am? Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And he says, well done. Good job. You figured it out. You've got it. You've seen. Rarely does he say, I am who you think I am. So why did he for this Samaritan woman? Why would he tell this woman outright? Now, we could speculate and theorize and theologize about this all day. But I believe through the text that it was because they, the Samaritans, needed to see that there was someone in the world who cared for them and loved them. And it took that divine level of power to change. The crazy thing is, we think, oh, well, we can't do that. It took that divine level of power. The Holy Spirit resides in you. And if he decides to use that divine level of power again, he will. He will do it. All we have to do is obey and listen and trust that is the key. Jesus not only broke historical tradition just by entering the country, but went even farther by not letting the past prevent ministry. He spoke and went when he needed to go and speak. He is the example. So one objection I get to myself, I object to myself, I don't know when to go. I don't know where to go, and I don't know what to speak. He always, what did he tell Aaron? And what did he tell Moses? I will speak for you. And when Moses said, God, I can, I can, I can, I can. He said, fine, I'll appoint Aaron and Aaron will do it for me. You're going to lead, but Aaron's going to speak because you didn't trust me. He has always provided the means to speak. And I have to remind myself of that. Her sin, her lifestyle were not enough to condemn her or overpower God's providence. This woman is a woman who has all the means to know better and still fell away. God offered her the same salvation even if she had been devout. The gift was the same. It is never changing. And it is a gift, amen? It is not something we earn. It is a gift that we must tell the others around us is beautiful and full of life and full of love. Is she not like the Christian who has fallen away? Like we all do sometimes? Don't hear that. Don't hear that just because you're in here every Sunday we're all in the same boat. Don't hear that just because I'm up here or Brother Peter's up here that we're in the same boat. We all have moments where God has to change something in our lives. We all have moments where God has to correct something that we usually willingly messed up. 
and it can be the most powerful moments in our life. I think anyone who has had a late conversion story can tell you the power of Christ in their testimony, can tell you what he did to change their life, just like they're doing in California, just like they're doing here. A woman, I don't know how long or how many years it took to go through five men, but if it was 10, 15, 20 years to go through five different men, that's a long time of history that he just erases. He says it doesn't matter. I love you and I want you home. Should we not look at our neighbors around us, those that we don't want to go to in the same way? Her tradition, her nation, and people did not save her. The traditions that she held did not save her. The traditions that the Jews hold to this day do not save them. Only Christ did. So we drew so many comparisons about the Samaritans and the Jewish people. The same father, the same style of worship, but some were loose about it and some were tight about it. They both need the same Savior. They both need the same king. And he started with one woman. One woman. And I'll go through, we won't spend much time on it, but we'll go through the after effects of what happened. Jesus instructs Jews and non-Jews alike in this event, showing that he is the wall breaker. And his example is the one we must follow. He breaks down walls. He breaks down barriers. He breaks down prejudices and history and everything that stands in the way of reaching people with love. He's not asking you to reach people with a Bible and whack them with it. He's asking you to reach them with love. Isn't that so much more fruitful in the end? Have you ever forgiven somebody that needed forgiving for a long time out of love? Maybe somebody you didn't want to forgive for the longest time, but when you finally do, and you mean it, and you mean it out of love, that wave of peace is like none other. It's letting go into Christ, and it's every day. Let's look at the results of this. I want to touch on one little point as a side note, how the disciples reacted. Looking here in verses 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? Now here's something that's completely different. The disciples were men of Judea, men of Jewish faith, who knew all the customs and didn't have God's perfection. Did, he, did it say that they just automatically accepted her and automatically worked and built and loved her like Jesus did? He said, no, they marveled at her. Oh my gosh, what is he doing? But notice what they didn't do. They didn't question it. They didn't try to stop Jesus. They were uncomfortable on purpose. They were amazed on purpose because they knew what he could do. They'd seen it time and time and time again. And we have seen it time and time again. And they knew better than to let their personal prejudices and history stop or try to stop because you will never stop Jesus. And the result. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves and we know that it is indeed the Savior of the world. Isn't that the greatest thing? We don't believe in God because you said so anymore. We've seen it. Isn't that a missionary? Isn't that evangelism? It is going and showing people that God's love is real, even if Jesus has not had a physical form on this earth since he was taken up into heaven. His Holy Spirit and his love are still here for us to show people. And it is incredible and powerful. If you hear anything today, hear that we have to check ourselves all the time and make sure 
that nothing around us, nothing about the people around us is separating our duty to God and what we are supposed to do. These people need the word. Brother Peter touched on this a couple of times. We know that the world is not coming to a close until every single ear has heard. Till the feet of God have moved over the whole globe will he say, okay, now it's time to start the real fun at the end. We must go. It is a command. And that may be just going to work and talking to that one annoying co-worker with that crazy high voice that you just cannot stand. But you need to talk to them. You need to hear them. Maybe it's one person that has been angry every day of their life. And it's not even like a funny or annoying anger. You're just sad that this person has been so mad. Why then should we not reach out to them and show them that God loves them? And you'll find that a lot of people already know about God. They know about what his love is. But they've not seen it at work in someone's life. And that is what we are called to show. You may be the only Bible some people ever read. To Judea, to Samaria, to all of the ends of the earth. Amen? Let's pray together. Our King, you are great and you are mighty and you are better than anything we could ever imagine. We cannot grasp the scope of who you are. We cannot grasp what you can do with obedience and trust. We love you. And if we don't love you like you, we should, cast out what is separating us from you. Cast out everything in my life that is separating me from you. You are the only king forever. forever. Almighty God, we lift you higher. Forevermore you are victorious. Keep us safe. Keep us safe so that we can do your will. Keep us fed so that we can do your will. Keep us to and from work, to and from friends, doing life safe so that we never waste an opportunity. Let us not be safe for selfish reasons, but safe to give ourselves a way to turn people to you. We are not in control. We are not people who can decide what you will do. We just must trust. Go with us into the rest of this day. And may everything we do glorify you. We pray all these things in your blessed name. Amen.